Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKenty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the Members Forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKenty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, noon, or night, whenever and wherever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on February 11, 2021. Today's program features writer Donald Jeffries. Donald got his start initially researching the many inconsistencies with the mainstream narrative concerning the JFK assassination, and has gone on to publish multiple books, including Hidden History, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, Survival of the Richest, as well as his most recent work, Bullyocracy. While all of his books broach the topic of an almost hidden hierarchy that controls and exploits the vast majority of the population by influencing and manipulating political power behind the scenes, today's discussion will focus on the bully culture that, though little discussed, may be the principal psychological and cultural characteristic that drives a society defined by the few ruling over the many. In Bullyocracy, Donald takes us back to high school where he posits the seeds of this social hierarchy are planted, not through the actual education received, but through the proliferation and mostly subconscious perpetuation of a bully culture that is ubiquitous within public schools throughout the United States and much of the world. This culture is based on the near-godlike adoration given not just by students, but by many teachers and administrators to the athletes and cheerleaders that make up the popular crowd. In his book, Donald cites example after example of popular students bullying, torturing, and even raping other students with impunity, while receiving extremely light sentences if punished at all. Though many of us look back at our educational experience and remember questioning the purpose of this social construct, most adults within education, law enforcement, journalism, and even the anti-bullying movement are loath to place the blame on the popular kids and the social structures that created them but instead downplay personal responsibility for these actions as a practical joke gone wrong, a rite of passage for those abused, or even blame the victim for not standing up for themselves. Excuse after excuse is given in the public realm for egregious criminal behavior if performed by a star athlete or popular young woman whose mean girl antics cause serious negative repercussions on an undeserving target. The book goes on to describe how this hierarchy does not stop in high school, but continues to flourish on college campuses, within athletic departments and Greek fraternities and sororities, then into the workplace as bullying personalities rise to the top, and social cliques continue to wreak permanent psychological damage on those who, for whatever reason, do not conform to some preconceived notion of superiority. Could the bullyocracy be a foundational characteristic of an essentially tyrannical society, where time and again the 1% is allowed to act without consequences, no matter the damage caused? Could it be that socialization into this unacknowledged hierarchy, starting from a very young age, 
creates a type of trauma bond, a Stockholm Syndrome, that prevents the many from standing up to the few. Find out, as Donald and I discuss in depth, the extent of the bullying, the odd acceptance of this behavior by authority figures, and the negative repercussions felt throughout society at large. You can find out more about Donald's work and catch his most recent blog posts at www.donaldjeffries.wordpress.com. If you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast across your social media network. Find out more about The Shift, sign up for the newsletter, enjoy hours of free content, or subscribe for feature-length versions of these discussions at theshiftnow.com. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKinty or on Twitter at McKinty. I'd like to thank author Donald Jeffries for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make The Shift. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this 69th episode of The Shift. I'm happy to be joined today by Donald Jeffries. He is the author of the book, Bullyocracy. Uh, this really gets into, I think, the heart of a lot of what's going on in our culture right now and has been going on for some time, and it just describes how bullying is such a huge part of the social fabric of what's happening in the United States and what's been happening for decades, how it starts in school, but you see it in college, uh, you see it um, in the workplace, you see it in the police force, you see it in the medical field, you see it in acting, he goes on and on, and he has all of the examples that you could possibly need uh, to really back it up, what's happening here in terms of the creation of this social hierarchy that's basically based on this bullyocracy. And so um, I'm excited to talk about this today. For those of you who have been checking out my Psychology of Lockdown series, sometimes I talk about how uh, within the school system, and I usually just talk about the grading system in terms of if you follow the authority, you get an A, and if you don't, if you question authority, you get an F, that kind of shaming and, and humiliation that happens to those who question. Uh, but I think this whole bullying social hierarchy that we'll get into today is a huge part of it as well, and it kind of sets us up uh, basically to live in an authoritarian state, or at the very least, to accept what authoritarians say or authority figures without really questioning and without uh, you know, getting triggered into a kind of a fight or flight situation based on shaming, based on humiliation, being the victim of bullying uh, that then um, causes many people to simply acquiesce to what authorities say without really thinking, maybe, maybe this isn't the best choice for me or my family or my community. So thank you so much, Don, for coming on today. Um, and do you just want to start off giving people a history of, of your work? I know you've done a lot of different stuff, uh, and then maybe, um, maybe describe what attracted you to this idea of the bullyocracy and why you wrote a book about it. Oh, thanks. Uh, you know, I, I, I started out really work, uh, investigating the JFK assassination primarily. As a teenager, I worked with Mark Lane's uh, group. Mark Lane was the most famous critic of the Warren Commission, wrote Rush to Judgment. And uh, he was a mentor to me and a hero to me because he was a civil libertarian. And if, if you've read my social media posts even today, I'm still a civil libertarian and there aren't very many of us left. Wow. And uh, certainly the left doesn't welcome me anymore. So, uh, I was very interested in the JFK assassination, and I worked for his Citizens Committee of Inquiry. We lobbied for a new investigation. That kind of led me down uh, other paths, uh, like uh, you know, RFK assassination, MLK assassination, and eventually things like Waco, Oklahoma City, 9-11, mm -hmm. all the big issues. And that's, that's when I wrote my first nonfiction books. I, I'm primarily a novelist, which is why I wanted to be. So I, my first book was The Unreals, which is the only fiction I've had published to date. And I was well received uh, critically, you know, I got a lot of people that liked it, but, uh, you know, 
this very small publisher. So uh, I just said, well, I'm going to try nonfiction. I know the JFK assassination. So I just started writing, you know, basically what became my platform that you see on a lot of other interviews and social media and, and uh, started with Hidden History, which is, which is the JFK assassination up to the Obama years because I had it published before Trump came on the scene. And then I wrote uh, Survival of the Richest, which is uh, my economic book. And that's uh, you know kind of my left-wing manifesto, but the left seems to hate it mm-hmm. because, because right. I talk about immigration and things like that. And they don't want to talk about that and the impact on wages and uh, uh, worker, blue-collar wages and benefits that it's had. Uh, and so uh, that was very critically – I probably have the most critical praise of any of my books, but it does not sell well. Hidden history sells real well. Mm-hmm. Then Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776-1963, was basically a prequel to hidden history, and uh, I go from the American Revolution up to the Kennedy assassination. Ron Paul wrote a forward to that, very gratified, a hero of nice. mine. Yeah. yeah, it was wonderful. So, uh, and then I, I wrote Bullyocracy, uh, which is, uh, you know, people said they kind of wonder, but you know, I'm interested in lots of things. I'm not, I'm not just interested in politics, and I had, had been is, is interested in this issue for a while, not because I was bullied, uh, but I, I saw things, and it wasn't anywhere near as bad back then. But I'm always uh, amazed at uh, how the left, especially, again, which is where I am, they talk about, they, they empathize with bullied victims. They talk about zero tolerance and all that. And I, as it works in the real world, is that those zero tolerance policies actually are completely meaningless. And in fact, schools that have them have more prevalence of bullying uh, than anywhere else because it's, it's typical woke leftness where they don't mean what they say. So what, what, what it ends up being is that then you have you actually have them cracking down. And of course, school systems, you know, this bullying happens primarily in school systems, which are by and large incredibly leftist in nature. Most teachers are very liberal. Most school administrators are, uh, especially in the big cities. So if they really are empathizing with what they call marginalized people, no one's more marginalized than say a kid with a handicap or a disability that that target, you know, signals that they should be bullied, you know, kind of to, to uh, aggressive kids. So they should be protecting those kids. They don't. They do the exact opposite. But if some kid mm-hmm. in there and some kid in a high school takes an aspirin, uh, they can be thrown out of school. And it's happened. Uh, if they are, you know, marked as say, I, and this actually happened, a little girl, I think she was 12 or something, wrote a magic marker on her desk, I love you or love my friend or something. She was expelled from school. Uh, kids have been arrested for burping in class. I mean, this kind of crazy police state stuff. But at the same time, vicious bullying happens inside of these classrooms. There was a girl in high school that was knocked unconscious in a classroom. And nobody questions it. Nobody questions because, of course, the first thing I did when I read these reports, that my, my first impulse is, was there a teacher in the classroom? Right. <laughs> How did this happen? And nobody ever questions the teacher. And you see now, look at the situation we're in now where the schools are still locked down. The teachers' unions, they don't want to go back to work. They're doing everything they can to not go back to work. And these are the people, and that's, again, why Bullyocracy, I've gotten more personal feedback from this than any of my other books, even though it hasn't sold that well. But uh, it's because so many people can relate to it. So many people were bullied or had someone who was bullied or their kids were bullied or siblings. I hear from these people all the time. They're horrendous stories you know, that right. came after the book was published. I would have loved to include them in the book. So this is a subject that touches everyone. And they, they were, they're very grateful that someone finally, I've had several people say, finally, somebody wrote a book you know, exposing all this because no one has. Everybody else works with these schools. The problem is the school system. Just as if it happens in the workplaces, 
it's because the workplaces and the people who run those workplaces enable it. And largely, they're the same psychopathic type of personalities that allowed it to happen uh, at the school level. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I mentioned before the show, when I first started reading the book, I thought we were going to kind of be talking a little bit more about the cancel culture and some of the political right. dialogue that's going on. And then as I started getting into it, I was like, okay, you know, this is very specifically about about bullying that goes on in institutions, specifically high schools and, and the school-age children. But then uh, you branch off and really include lots of sectors of society and the workplace later on in the book. And all of a sudden, as I'm getting through it, I'm realizing like this, this is the issue. I mean, this is the issue that we should all be talking about, because I think that this kind of psychology, this this hierarchical popularity contest that's going on inside all of the schools, this social structure that that, as you say, all of the adults seem to enable like over and over again, over and over again, there were stories about bullies that would just pick on a kid. Clearly, there must have been a teacher somewhere around. And then as soon as the victim fights back, the teacher shows up. And then the, and then as often as not, it's the victim that gets suspended for fighting in school. Or, um, you know, if something escalates into serious violence or even rape, I mean, and you just have example after example, uh, then the system is, is consistently victim shaming and going very leniently on uh, the people that are perpetrating the bullying. It's just such a fascinating story. It, and it brought me back to my own high school experience. Why, why don't we just dwell a little bit on, on this whole, you know, the bullyocracy in school where you really delve into, uh, you know, the kind of the athlete, the jock, the popular kid, the cheerleader, uh, and, and then sort of the rest of the school and how this hierarchy is developed in within the school system and then perpetuated by the adults. It's something that fascinated me when I was in high school. I mean, when I was in high school, I would just ask myself, I thought I was supposed to be here to learn. And clearly the teachers, the administrators, and I went to a, a high school in, in Texas where it was all football all the time. And everybody, you know, we were forced to go to the pep rallies. If you didn't go to the pep rally, then you were truant. You would get punished. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the whole and all the teachers participated like it was just completely yeah. normal to have this hierarchical structure and to and to give preferential treatment to the popular kids. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and you, the pep rallies, uh, the, uh, the the homecoming court, right? Uh, prom queen and king, uh, you know, uh, things, uh, fly, powder puff football, all these things that are in, in, in their traditions at every school. They exist. Their purpose is to continue to enable those who have risen to popularity. And and I've, there's a lot of parallels between bullyocracy, my book, and Survival of the Richest, uh, where I talk about all the how the, the system is rigged against everyone except for the very wealthy. And it's the same right. kind of thing. And, and for all intents and purposes, the, the very popular kids in the schools are the wealthy, the 1% of their schools. So the rules don't apply to them. If they commit some transgressions, the system covers up for them. Right. And the system is constantly giving accolades to these same people, much as we see in our society. The people that already have too much continue to get more while people struggle at the bottom. It's the exact same way in school. The kids who are ready are basking in the glow of what is really celebrity or fame in their little pot in their various little ponds. Absolutely. They're basically, they're, they're basking in it. So they have these ceremonies, whether it's a pep rally or award ceremonies where they can, 
you know, come up with more, uh, you know, to call them up on stage to be cheered even more. Uh, this is constant. I mean, it's ridiculous that you should have to go to a pep rally and cheer on. I mean, what if you don't like football or something? Right. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you would, they would never do that for the Glee Club or the, you know, the uh, audiovisual squad or. Well, know, that's exactly right. Or the academic decathlon or, you know, and right. people that are actually studying and learning yes, for, God, for yes. God's sakes in a school. Yes. <laughs> well, that, and I, and exactly. And I, and I bring that up, but you know, that, that, that you, you analyze these things and I, I could, it's very, very seldom that you're going to find anybody who, I mean, the, the idea of school is supposed to be to achieve, to, you know, within that system would be to get the best grades, right. Or what I would think right. uh, to, to academic excellence. But academic excellence is there; it doesn't correlate to any kind of popularity. The only way anybody who's like the valedictorian or that could happen—it's almost almost always with a female, because a lot of the girls that are really popular also are, have are great students. They're at National Honor Society and so mm. forth. But and they're Eddie Haskell types. You know, they can fool all the adults, but they're viciously tormenting some girls behind the scenes. It's what they do. That's the mean girls phenomenon. Boys, right. not so much, because most of the football players and stuff, they just, they don't care. It's part of their shtick to not get good grades, I guess. But they, uh, the idea, should, if anybody should be popular in school, you'd think it would be the people, the straight A student. Or the, right. that, you know, that, that, I mean, because I mean, and we still might not like that. The average students, uh, stupid straight eye guy, whatever, kiss up. But we can at least rationalize it a little bit. But that's not the way the system works. The hierarchy promotes the people who are excel in a few crucial areas and typically related to sports or just simply to physical looks. You know, if you're a good-looking girl. Right. Odds are you're going to be popular uh, if if you have money, maybe in some schools. But most of the time, if you're good, typically in just two sports, football or basketball, those are the sports that dominate high school. I guess baseball in some areas, wrestling maybe in some places of the Midwest, but uh, you know other sports not so much. And no other endeavor like drama. You think no drama? The drama people are made fun of a lot, right? Uh, ironically, and uh, and as I point out in the book, so many of the celebrities we see who obviously excel at drama, actors, were big jocks and and popular people in school and people you wouldn't think. You know, Rosie O'Donnell was her homecoming queen. Hmm. Uh, Pee Wee Herman was a great high school wrestler. Right. Uh, Woody Woody Allen was a great basketball and baseball player in high school. So it's it's people that you won't, don't even think of. Well, wait, wait a minute, really? That that's it. but you. So basically, my premise was that the reason why it never gets changed is because the people that run our society, by and large, are those kids who were popular in high school, and then they become popular in life. And and one of the mm -hmm. saddest studies. Uh, and it's the myth we've cherished for a long time is that, well, you know, the high school quarterback, he may torment the, uh, the you know, the, the, the nerd with the, the pocket protector or the, you know, this the science geek or whatever. He may torment him in school and give him wedgies or whatever. But uh, later on, that nerd will, will, will be bossing him around because the high school, the, the, the big jock will peak out in high school. That's right. But unfortunately, the statistics don't show that. They show that the, that the more popular you are in high school the more successful you tend to be in life. And really, I, I draw the, uh, the uh, correlation between popularity in high school and success in adult life. Because basically, to be popular in high school is really the only success. That's that's achieving success at that level. What else can you do at that point? You, you've, you've succeeded. Mm -hmm. You become very popular. You become one of the uh, big men or big women on campus. And uh, so it's, I think it's – and this is where the 
why so many people have trouble that other than the people who were bullied or experienced this, they love what I'm saying because they know it's true. But any of the edge, so-called educators, the so-called anti-bullying experts who, who don't like what I'm saying at all, because they're not really trying to stop bullying. Again, this is all a show. I don't, I don't know what they're trying to do. And I think it's part of the virtue signaling world. They're signaling they care, but they don't want to stop the problem. Yeah. And uh, if, they, if they wanted to do it, they would look at the root cause, which is why or if you can't have a certain, a very small portion of your student body be popular and be uh, you know lauded by people without having a corresponding unpopular group because you know not, not everyone can't be beautiful unless you have an ugliness to contrast it with you can't have popularity without unpopularity so you have to have that trench coat mafia and the other side and more and more and more you're seeing that uh, they are they're adorning themselves too where the jocks get to wear their letterman sweaters uh, letterman jackets to school their football jerseys every friday in every school across the country yeah. the cheerleaders wear their uniforms so in case you don't know who the popular kids are we're going to let you know right. <laughs> you know in case you don't know hey these are the popular kids and then just think about that what is the point of that i mean i understand what it does for the handful of people to get to do it but it builds their ego up, and that's why you see so many of these popular kids that become conceited and arrogant because you can't really blame them. Sure. Their egos are being stroked to such an extent; they're being singled out as I'm special. You know, I'm the only one that's wearing this, you know, this cool outfit in, in class, and everybody knows me now who I am. And I have tons of people like you know who know me, but I don't know them. So you can't really ex expect them to have any other kind of attitude. But it's again, it's the adults. That are enabling that because, as I show over and over again, the book is when there was there's some kind of altercation. If there's a popular kid involved, that adult is almost always going to side with the popular kid or try to negate it. And then if the kid who's maybe troubled has some issues, fights back. As you say, every time they somehow suddenly they're awake and they catch that. You know, they, right. missed, they missed all the bullying. But right. it's it's a it's a horrible situation. But I. You know, it's it's obviously the people that that graduated from being popular in high school to becoming successful in life and running our society, basically, whether it's business, yeah. uh, whether it's uh, the entertainment world, the sports world, uh, these people are in charge. So they're they're not going to change things because the system worked really great for them. What kind of a, what really amazes me is with the amount of enabling that's happening in the society that, uh, I, I mean, you know, you just have examples over and over again. It's, you, you had no dearth of material to work with. Um, and, and just the amount of the uh, adults, and these are adults that are, they're, you know, middle-class teachers. They're not the successful businessmen or the CEOs or the athletes that ended up making it. I mean, these are pe people who clearly probably weren't even in that popular class in high school, and yeah. yet they become teachers and they want to perpetuate it. And it's, that's something that, I mean, I'll just tell you this story because it's precisely because of this um, emotional environment that I decided to homeschool my children, right? I was just like, I don't want them to have to deal with any of this at all. And consistently over and over again, as my kid would become five or six years old and they'd say, Hey, uh, you know, people would just tell me what school is he going to go to? And I'd say, well, we're, we're homeschooling. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and then over and over again, I got the same response. Well, how are they going to get socialized? You right. know? And so yeah. it's, it's considered by, by many adults, including the ones that were victimized in, in the, high school environment in that hierarchical environment 
who it's like this, you mentioned in the book, the Stockholm syndrome, that even the people that are victimized by the process still somehow cling to it as a, it must have value and you must endure. You know, again, in the book, you, you also kind of mentioned this whole, you know, it's, it toughens you up to be bullied and picked on. And that's how you become stronger. And, and this, and, you know, and people would say socialization is what they call it. And I'm like, you mean throwing my kid into a situation where in adult life, where you deal with people of all ages, you want me to throw my kid in a situation where they're in right. with people of the same ages and essentially a Lord of the flies environment where the kids can beat up on them. And there's all these wild, right. you know, social hierarchies going on that make no sense. Yeah. Uh, but people love it. They just are, you know, it's a, it's a psychological conditioning. And I think it's really foundational to the whole of our culture. I mean, I'm, I'm glad, I'm so glad that you wrote this book because it does, target something that everybody it's like everybody wants to cover up it's like the 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 evil underbelly of, of the foundations of the culture that nobody wants to talk about and everyone wants to cover up um yeah absolutely and and you know i think that uh you know in the past and I, if there was a, if there's a reason i think why i'm drawn to this subject it's probably because uh my niece was born with Down syndrome. I talk about it in the book mm -hmm. uh, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, and it had a huge impact on me because I saw in my own life the way not just kids, but adults, the ones you talk about, the fine, upstanding middle-class adults would, would treat her. And it's it just astonishing. And that, that was, you know, <laughs> that opened my eyes because yeah. I could not believe that people could act that way, that adults could act that way. So now when you hear people cavalierly saying retard and stuff, it, 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 I cringe at it. Of course, I'm, I'm the last thing I am as a social justice warrior, so I don't want to ban people from saying it. But that's my word that, that you know, that, that really sets me up because uh, yeah. the, because because uh, they're the most talk about marginalized people. So but, but before that, like when, when she was born, my sister, everybody advised her to put her away in an institution because again, and that's, and that's what they typically did with people with down syndrome or other disability developmental disabilities. They hid them away. And what, what you see is I think that's what our society, the, what the real, the worst victims of the social hierarchy are people. I talk about them a lot in the book. You can go on online forums and read about it. And I've been communicated with by a few of them, the worst who had the worst imaginable things that happened to them in school that they simply, could not, uh, and, and I can understand. You know, not everybody's real strong. Yeah. That they cannot over. Just like some people can rise above, like being having a real abusive childhood. They can they can rise above having a crappy family environment and go on and lead great lives. Most people can't. Most people can't. Rent that so people that are were emotionally and there are middle aged people out there, and you can read about them. And I've talked to some that still like wake up screaming every day that are 60, 70 years old over what happened right. when they were kids Yeah, because it, it scarred their lives. They were never able to marry. Uh, some of them probably are still virgins. They couldn't have any kind of relationship because they couldn't, they were scared to, to relate to people. And, and they had that, uh, whatever that oddness or weirdness that was, you know, basically it might as well have been you know, stamped on them. So they were, uh, you know, and, and, as, and as adults, again, we can, we think this ends, it doesn't end. Those are the kind of people, those people still exist and, you know, around every cubicle, there's somebody and the enablers, the people that, uh, like us, maybe like, and I, I was a background player in high school. I, I didn't, uh, <clears throat> like the vast majority of people, I was just there. I didn't want to be there, right. but, uh, so I, I was the audience, you know, most people hate school because it's boring. And it's another thing, you know, I, I could write, a, a, you know, uh, 
a thesis on that, you know, about how bad the schools are, how just sure. incredibly boring it is and how they fail to really, I mean, everything I've learned in my life was outside. I, I learned almost nothing in public education. I, I educated myself and I think yeah. most people do that. So they, they really are horrible at what they do. I mean, because but they do uh, create obedient serfs to the state, as you know, they, you know, people that are obey authority. But they also teach you some, and some, the most enlightened things I found were just uh, anonymous souls on the internet that would talk about it was analyze school. And they did it much more brilliantly than any of these educators do. But one of them talked about, you know, this is it, it serves schools serve a purpose that. Uh, they're, they're most young people's first experience with a government institution, and mm-hmm. they re- they realize at this time it it's it gets you know emblazoned in their mind that this is the way it is. Authority figures are are flawed. Uh, they're not going to see. They're not going to be able to correct misbehavior in the right part. They're usually going to be so clueless that they blame the wrong person, and they're not there to protect the vulnerable. So that's the way government at large is. Government is not going to protect the vulnerable. Government is going to see that the rewards go to the same people, and they're not going to punish those that need to be punished. And often we'll punish those who you know are completely innocent or victims. So it's it's you know so I think it's it's just a microcosm of of uh, the way we see society even today. The cover-ups that you describe in the book are just unbelievable. Where I mean, you know, a college athlete will get. I mean, gang raping uh, a poor, you know, a poor woman. And then um, she tries to come out with her story and she's the one that's getting shamed. And then even the, you know, the, the, the coach certainly, but then the, the, the uh, educational institution and the, and then the cops and then the lawyers and then the judges will all, you know, poo poo it and put it down and cover it up. And then the the community, the community, right. Right. It's it's just phenomenal. Um, uh, you know, I don't I, I I just want to impart to the audience how this system is so ingrained in everyone that they think that I think that it's like perpetuating this cycle of violence. They think it must serve some some purpose of toughening us up. Uh, and so they go to these great links of, of covering it up and pretending like it's not happening or pretending like, you know, it's just part of the growing process or something. But the level of violence that you describe is in, I mean, at the very least, when someone's in a high school situation and you describe, you know, four or five years of bullying, you're going to get some kind of post-traumatic stress from long-term, you know, bullying like that. But I mean, then the individual acts of violence which include you know hazing that includes rape and and murder and still these people are getting light sentences and getting off and like boys will be boys and you know you talk about how people joke it's a joke it's a it was just a practical joke it was a prank it went a little too far we're so sorry and then nothing happens when clearly (laughs) like you just murdered someone or you just gang raped someone like Exactly. What's going on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, <laughs> and you, 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 you definitely see this, and and there, there is that attitude. Well, it just happens. It's life. We, you know, and they'll, they'll. A lot of times, these bullies. I, I have the story of a fairly successful writer that talked about. He wrote an article on the internet about being invited, I think, to his twentieth school reunion or something. And mm-hmm. he, he just, it was wonderful. If you read it, what he wrote, that he said, you know, why the hell would you think I would want to see you again? Right. Are you insane? You know, but I think a lot. Maybe they don't even remember, or they don't. 
again, they they try to uh, rationalize it because yeah. again, they're they're doing awful things. But the problem is that's why I talk about uh, <clears throat> when they used to lock away people who were born with you know awful handicaps. Uh, they they just shut them away from the world. They put them in monasteries and things like nunneries and things like that. Uh-huh. One of the Kennedy kids, you know, was put that way. But uh, now we we tend to when we have these worst victims of bullying later on in life, they're essentially shut away because we don't and we just call them weirdos or we say and then a lot you know maybe they'll turn into serial killers or something you know. So we we don't sure. think of what you know what what man might have triggered that. And I, that's why I talk about the school shooters. Every one of those school shooters, and this is, of course, not to, uh, you know, uh, to try to defend school shooters, but there's always something that triggers these things. So we, we understand, for instance, if somebody, a serial killer is violently abused, which most of them are coming from horrible backgrounds by their parents or whatever they have a terror, we understand, well, that's probably was responsible for maybe making them into this monster. Uh, but it's the same thing. If you, if you go through a horribly uh, traumatic experience through, you know, some of these kids are, I, I've, you know, read things where they said, you know, I was, I was bullied every day of my life from first, from kindergarten through 12th grade. Yeah. So, I mean, just imagine, and you have to go there. This is a place and you tried a lot of these kids, some of them don't feel they can tell their parents or their parents just assume they're exaggerating as you talked about, you know, teachers and grading and so forth, you know, it, it's now we're understanding. And I put some of the evidence in the book there that teachers do favor. Mm-hmm. They aren't fair in grades. Uh, so th- th- there's evidence for that. But you've heard so many kids say, well, the teacher doesn't like me. They're complaining. Well, and their parents, you know, I just shut up. And you know, most parents, again, are just clueless. They're not like you. Well, they're increasing number of people that are homeschooling now. And, yeah. uh, and essentially, of course, and this is what's kind of ironic about this book now is that we're, they're all essentially homeschooled at this point with schools being shut down until right. further notice. So, so I'm not sure, you know, what's going to go on if the social hierarchy will be broken that way or what. But uh, so maybe something good will come out of it. But uh, it's, you know, the, these things and when they have these the social rituals and they're, I understand it's dear to their hearts and it's wonderful for the people who benefit by them. And they would be pretty cool if they were democratic and open to everyone, but they're not. Yeah. There are there. Everybody knows, you know, whether it's uh, you know homecoming queen or prom queen, whatever. Everybody knows who's. It's a very. It's a handful of the most popular, basically Oscar nominees, if you if you will, at that level. So everybody knows who. You're not going to vote for your your geeky friend, although sometimes they and I put they they do that. They actually promote that as a laugh to make fun of them further. Yeah, they've done that many times before. And again, the school enables all this and. It's all none of this could happen without the school authorities participating. That's why I <clears throat> indict where I can. I name the names because over and over again, parents and, and the worst, of course, is when I talk to uh, <clears throat> too many parents whose kids have killed themselves. So, yeah. you know, to be driven to suicide when you're not even a teenager, these are prepubescent kids in some cases. Uh, when you're driven to suicide by what's happening to you at school, I mean, that ought to, you know, that doesn't warrant like national congressional hearings right. and, and, and the education community looking at themselves. I don't know what would, but they don't. They just ignore it. They sweep it under a rug and they don't understand what they've left with these lives. In many cases, there was a one, I don't have the name in front of me, but there was a one little boy that was very young, maybe 11 or something that killed himself. His parents started a, uh, an anti-bullying organization in his honor, in his name. Then the father ended up killing himself after a couple of years. Yeah. 
I mean, just these are these are a man. And there's other things have happened where one sibling killed themselves a couple years later. Another one does because they can't deal with it. So there's a residual effect. And and then, of course, you wind up with the just the lonely people that we talk about, the people that are hidden away like the people were that were mentally retarded in the old days where they uh, they can't really whatever jobs. It's very menial. They have no relationships. They're all by themselves. Their quality of life is horrible. And they're 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 left with these terrible memories every day. I mean, how we all live with regrets, but just imagine waking up and screaming, as some of these people describe doing, uh, something that happened 50, 60 years ago. I mean, that's right. That shouldn't happen in any society. And most of the experts would basically tell them to toughen up. And uh, <clears throat> I, as I pointed out, I don't. I think it can be argued that uh, that kind of abuse, to the extent that it damages to that degree is at least as, as uh, you know, injurious as uh, sexual abuse would be. We don't tell – if a kid says he was sexually abused or she was sexually abused at a very young age, we don't tell them – we understand why that scarred them. We yeah. don't sit there and say, right. oh, you know, tough it up. You know, stuff happens. You know, <laughs> okay, you, you had a perverted uncle. You know, sorry. No, nobody would say that. But they do say that to bullied victims. Mm-hmm. When in many cases, you know, especially the when you do the sexual stuff, when they're inserting things up their butts that they do so many of these kids that they did, <clears throat> sometimes injuring in the process. But if that was just done by an uncle to, a, you know, to an underage niece or something, we wouldn't look at it the same way. We, yeah. we wouldn't look and say, well, you know, he was just playing around. No. Why, why is it playing around in one instance and not the other? So. We need to look at this a different way, but I, unfortunately, I'm disillusioned because I had, uh, you know, I, I communicated with some of these so-called anti-bullying experts, and they, you know, they they make you realize why the problem will never be solved because they are on the side of the bullies always, much as the teachers and the principals are. There's nobody other than myself to what little platform I have. There is nobody else that has any kind of a platform that is really taking up for these bullied victims. It's just amazing to me. I remember when Columbine happened and when, and I yeah. heard about it that day. And the very first thought I had was like, well, it, you know, it was bound to happen. Like I was, and I, and then I, and then the next thought that I had was, well, now we're going to have a national conversation about the psychology, the toxic psychological environment in these schools, because it's got to come out in the open. I mean, I just, from my own personal experience, again, just flabbergasted, you know, I just remember, I don't know why I, and I wasn't even particularly bullied. I mean, I think my, I was been thinking back on it as I was reading your book and me and my group of friends who are, you know, typically sort of the the nerd class, I guess, um, we developed a pretty, a pretty sardonic wit. And I think that we were, you know, but we had to yeah. almost become bullies. Now I'm, I'm thinking yeah. back about it. And I was like, I had to be a little bit of a bully myself actually yeah. mm-hmm. to keep the, um, and I still, you know, there were instances of bullying. There were instances of, of hazing. Uh, I was in band for a year and I used to wonder even when I was in band, why don't we have a band concert and then between sets, the football players come out and play for 15 minutes, you know, and then they get <laughs> off and then we get to do our band. Yeah. Like, I, because yeah. it just blew my mind that football was, you know, clearly the driving factor yeah. in the whole school and that the adults and the teachers, everybody was just in on this. And it was, I, I still don't fully understand it, but I, but I saw how dysfunctional it was while I went through it. And then when Columbine happened, r- really, it was like, to me, this was just, it was a matter of time before something like this was going to happen. Now we're going to have a national conversation about, you know, the unhealthy environment within the school systems. And 
none of that. No conversation whatsoever. If anything, like you say, you know, blaming the kids. Oh, the kids had a terrible home life and, you know, nothing to do with the school system and certainly the teachers. Well, you, you, well, you saw, you saw in in Columbine and I, again, I don't have the names in front of me, but, uh, there was a prominent guy that wrote a book, and it's, he's been published many times in articles about Columbine, where he's trying to contradict all the information that was out there. They have tapes of these kids, Seabold uh, and uh, I'm sorry, I forgot their names as well. Yeah. The, the two main, the two shooters, but uh, they that talked about the awful that we're going to get back at them, not inviting. They, right. they were clearly bullied. <laughs> There's right. no question about it. There's, but but it's it doesn't much as like today and in, in the in the council culture, evidence doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter what a tape says. It doesn't matter. You know, it's what you feel. <clears throat> well, apparently in this case, they feel that this wasn't a problem. It's more, and, and this is their answer typically will be, well, you know, it's complicated. It's it's more than that. Maybe they had a bad home life because it's easy to blame the parents. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, maybe they had a home life. Maybe there were other issues uh, that, and of course, I understand where nobody's excusing uh, kids taking guns and blowing away, you know, other kids. It's uh, obviously we but that should never happen. Yeah. And and I think if you look in the backgrounds of those kids, you're going to find, and you can see, as I wrote, so in the book, I showed people how they scrub, much as like my political writing, they scrub the record. They get rid of the inconvenient evidence. So the evidence in all these cases shows the, the school shooter was bullied viciously. So that helped them. Now, of course, they had to be messed up in some way mentally to do that, to take that step. But clearly, they probably would not have taken that step without the vicious pulling. That mm-hmm. seemed to be what triggered them. But nobody wants to go there because, again, that interferes with, okay, well, who are they being bullied by? Not the audiovisual squad. Not their fellow nerds. Okay? Right. Yeah. <laughs> we know who is pulling them because we know now we know, thank goodness, they finally admitted that, yeah, it is the popular kids that do the bullying where, you know, it's no longer the – you can't paint this picture of the troubled kid from the other side of the tracks who's – bitter because his old man's a drunk and beats him up all the time. So he goes to school and takes it out of everybody else. Now those, they may be isolated examples of that, but in the, for the most part, especially with females, since the female bullying is, is in many ways more psychologically scarring and it's more prominent now. Like most of the people, what really got me started down this road, other than just, you know, feeling strongly about it, is I started seeing pictures of all these really, really attractive young girls that killed themselves. Yeah. And I, I couldn't – that didn't make any sense to me. It's like, wait wait a minute. I, I, why would a good-looking, really good-looking young teenage girl kill themselves? I mean that that's just – it made no sense. That would have never happened when I was in high school. So I started looking at the background, and I realized I had never seen that movie Mean Girls, the Mean Girls phenomenon. And I started analyzing that stuff and realizing, okay, the reason they do is because they're hanging out with other good-looking girls, and they start doing these psychological games with them. Mm-hmm. You know, where they decide the queen bee decides they're, you know, her, her little court, they're going to pick on one of them and just mess with him. And in many cases, sometimes they do something stupid like uh, sex something where they send a picture topless or something and then the, the popular voice pass it around. And it ends up they can't deal with humiliation and they kill this. And almost every one of these cases, something like that happened. Yeah. But uh, again, nobody is talking about it. I mean, they're kind of, they're acting like it's not going to happen again. And since I've written the book, <clears throat> they're... I see stories almost every day. People send them to me or I see them online. The, the problem is just the same. Now, it may have slowed down now, again, with schools being closed. But as long as schools are open, uh, this stuff is happening. And, and I, you know, 
what I've talked about, which is amazing, is that with all the uh, police presence in schools, with security cameras everywhere, bullying should be documented always. They should be able to figure out, hey, this kid's telling the truth or not. And in most of the cases, no one talked about that. There was no police didn't say. In fact, I, I report on at least one instance where the police didn't examine the videotape because it wasn't relevant. Wasn't relevant. Right. That would show you, you know, who was telling the truth and what the circumstances were. But because <clears throat> they're not interested in uh, in solving anything, because they know who the bullies are, they know who the aggressors are, and they don't want to go there because that would disrupt the hierarchy. And it's basically almost like people, kids knowing their place. The yeah. kid who's unpopular and nobody knows, he can't be allowed to win at anything or to beat a really popular kid at anything. And that's, that's the way the system works. It's much, much as like, you know, the, uh, you know, a file clerk is not going to be able to ever beat a CEO at anything in our society. In both cases, you're dealing with rigged systems. And in many cases, the yeah. social hierarchy in many ways prepares us for the adult rigged marketplace that I talk about in Survival of the Riches. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, you, you kind of knock on the door here, but I started thinking as I was reading it that it, it, we really live in, I mean, I've thought this for a while, that that our, our economy is basically set up with a cartel system. It's like the biggest gang won, you know, uh, 200 years ago or yeah. 500 years ago with colonization mm -hmm. or however you want to describe it. And now we have this cartel system where these guys on the top uh, – you know, control most of the resources and the rest of us are serfs basically that kind of work for this corporate system right now. And so I, I think that, but then on this psychological level, it's just wild that you're seeing that this lawlessness in effect, this criminal culture starts in high school where yeah. the 1%, if you will, or the popular kids can get away literally with murder and, and, you know, like a 16, 17 year old football player rapes someone or they gang rape someone or they haze someone to near death or kill someone even. And like you say, evidence that all of the adults in the school administration and the cops and the judges and everyone in the community will sweep it under the rug. Well, you're a member of the popular class, so yeah. you can do whatever you want. I mean, I think there was a sentence in, in your book where you basically said, if we let these people get away with murder, then why do we even have laws at all? Like why, you know, and it does yeah, seem like, exactly. like there are, you know, yeah. the prosecution is very selective. If you're a victim, then they'll throw the book at you. Like yeah. you talk about with the, you know, the kids that are burping in class and getting arrested by this yeah. surveillance state, this militarized police state that's become right. a public school. <laughs> but if you're a popular right. kid, you can literally get away with murder. It's nuts. Yeah. No. And, and again, I think it prepares us for the, the and I think for those of us who question why, for instance, you know, no, no deep state criminals ever get or, or prosecuted. Right. Arrested. Well, right. You can see, I mean, they, they can't even prosecute or they can't even punish or, uh, you know, a high school kid that is popular enough to do the most, the worst thing possible to rape someone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many have murdered, but I guess they could theoretically. Uh, but I'm one, in many cases, I, I talk about the, uh, and again, it, the, the race lines are blurred here always, too. There's so many stories where, you hear the woke culture that everything is anti-white and racist, racist, racist. Well, uh, one of my favorites, not favorite, but one of the most egregious stories was a, a black athlete who was, I guess, was, was obviously a lesser athlete or I think wouldn't have happened to him. But his body was found rolled up in the school gymnasium, dead mm -hmm. during a, a school day. And, uh, you know, literally, I mean, now, I think when we send our kids to school, we, we have a right to expect that 
they're not going to be, you know, die in the gymnasium or, or something under unclear circumstances. But that's what happened. And his parents, again, these are black people. I don't see Al Sharpton or Jesse J. I I mean, that, that's the kind of case maybe you ought to question. Wait a minute. I mean, I don't think it's racism because it happens to all races, but it's the system. Something happened where he had been complaining about uh, other football players harassing him to no avail. The same kind of thing we see uh, all the time. And his body – and they actually – came up with a ridiculous excuse and claimed he had, he'd lost his shoe or his shoe had fallen off and he reached into the mat and fell in and got rolled up in it. That that's how I mean this is this right. this is this is like one of the you know that that you know Gary Webb shot himself twice in the head yeah. or or the guy that uh that uh, Donald Trump put in charge of uh of uh, lowering pharmaceutical pharmacy uh prescription prices last year. He was found dead, and they claimed he beat himself to death. Blunt force trauma all over his body. You know, th- this <laughs> right. is what they – this is a fetus. So that's at that level. And, and again, it prepares people for it. His family can do nothing. Again, even though in political correctness, they've got all the Trump cards. It's the yeah. black kid that died, but they can't get anywhere. So it, it doesn't matter. It, that social hierarchy, it's, it's uh, above all that. But it's all about covering up, and they can't even – they let the worst things happen. There was another kid that drowned in a school pool. And I, I said, you know, first of all, not that many schools have pools. But I think the least you can expect is if they go into a pool that someone will be there yeah. to, to be able to, to save them if that happens. But And again, the, the teacher that was present or whatever, they're never questioned. To me, that, that's who should be held responsible. Yeah. How did you let that happen? Explain that. If that's my kid, I want to know that. I, that's I think the least we can expect when he sent send our kids to school is that they don't drown at school premises. But these things happen all the time. Uh, you know, not exactly like that, but just as horrible things happen. Uh, There's another case of, and she happened to be black, but again, no. But she came home from kindergarten, looked like she'd gone 15 rounds in a, in a heavyweight prize fight. The mother asked the school, and they said, "Oh, she fell." Right. I mean, and these and these things, it's you know what, but. Nobody and I don't even understand that because she was really little. There was another case of a kid at at uh, kindergarten, I think, who uh, was uh, some kid, some bully. And again, kindergartners should be monitored constantly on the playground. You can't tell me adults don't see what's happening. I mean, I know I was with. I used to go volunteer with my kids all the time. I saw things constantly. There's no way the teachers missed that. The kid kept daring him to pull down his pants in front of the class. So, of course, eventually he bullied him into doing it. He said, if you don't do it, I'm going to pull him down for you. So as soon as he pulled his pants down, then the teachers woke up right. and took the, basically arrested him, took the, printing, the kindergartner back to class for expo, indecent exposure. So, again, if you have a real investigation like that, if you have rational, honest people in charge, the first thing they do is they bring every adult, whether it was a teacher, assistant, whatever, in and say, okay, how did this happen? How did you possibly miss – that couldn't have been a quiet thing with the kid daring him to pull his pants or I'm going to pull it down for you. Yeah. Uh, you think there would be one tattletale saying, this so-and-so, he's going to – you'd think that. But obviously – and then it's, you sprung into action and this happens over and over and over again. These are the things we need to do in all these cases, but we don't. And you have, you have uh, one of my, my favorite example to, sh- to show the extent of the problem is uh, there was a viral video a couple years ago where a middle-aged man, maybe 40s, I don't know, 50 maybe came into a school board meeting and was uh, talking about how school bullying was a big problem and had been going on in that school district since he was a child. He said, you know, I was bullied relentlessly. My head was stuck in the urinal, all these horrible things that happened. And he looked at the school board president. He said, and you were the one who did that to me. (laughs) Right. 
This is the school right. board, the yeah. superintendent of wow. schools. And you could see he just, <laughs> he went right back to being a bully. And yeah. that's the problem. Who knows how many other school superintendents did that to kids? So they're in charge. And right. I, I don't know, nobody, the, the media, the media covers this up. I mean, the media can't tell the truth about anything. If you've read a, my political writing, you know what I think of them. We don't have any investigative journalists. It's crazy. So they right instinctively now. stick up for the schools. Yeah. yeah, it is, especially now. So they can't, these, these should be stories that should have been an expose. Yeah. How did this guy get to be a school superintendent when he did such horrible things when he was a kid? No, it's well, swept under the rug. I'm sure nothing happened. And it's just, I don't know. It's, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, you, I'm just going to say, you tell stories in the book where, where 50, the, the parents will call and I can only imagine what it must feel like to be a parent of a child who's bullied because the parents, yeah. some, in some cases, I mean, calling the school dozens of times and the school yes. will say like, I mean, you've talked about, we, we have a zero tolerance policy and we haven't seen anything and nothing's <laughs> going on. And I mean, you know, doesn't, right. doesn't the, the, you know, the 30th or 40th time you're talking to the principal cause your kids come home with the, you know, bloody yeah. nose or whatever, or right. crying because they've been emotionally abused and uh, and the the people aren't doing anything about it. it it's just outrageous. Yeah. It really is. It's incredible. And if they if they can't tell the truth about, for instance, there's a case that really got to me. A 12 year old Rebecca Sedgwick, who uh, they claim jumped off a water tower. 12 years old, killed herself in Florida. Yeah. And uh, I read that was a, it got a lot of press. I corresponded with her mother off and on. And I just and this is I, I went back and forth. I got the official police report uh, on on the investigation from an anti bullying expert who was kind enough to share it with me, but she's completely deluded. She shared it with me because she thought it would prove, it would make me realize the error of my ways. Uh Because the the idea was, in this case, law enforcement actually attempted, Sheriff Grady Judd actually attempted to do his job. It was obvious who the two little girls were that were bullying this kid and tormenting her. It was obvious. It was documented everywhere on their social media posts and everything. I mean, you you wouldn't have to have any training in law enforcement to figure this out. But Grady Judd, because he actually, unlike most law enforcement, he actually tried to do his job and and you know punish them in some way. He was he almost lost his job. The media attacked him relentlessly. Yeah. He had to end up dropping charges against him. And uh, if you just read the communication between me and this, uh, it was unbelievable because she and I said, look, after you sent me the police reports, I'm obviously the police report shows that everyone was aware these two girls were doing it. And then, in fact, the, the, the main ringleader, the entire school was terrified of her, had been for years. And again, this is, this is why the problem, the rabbit hole goes deeper, because these are 12-year-old. The hierarchy has, is just starting to form. Yeah. And she clearly wasn't a popular football player or anything. So what is going on here? How is this – how are they failing to uh, – basically a, a bull in a china shop that's running around their school doing these awful things that everybody knows? But – I, I have one that's even, you know, earlier than that, there was a, and it was another one of the landmark cases that really got my attention. It was in Cleveland back in maybe 2000 or so, where there a kindergartner, probably the most problematic kindergartner in the history of the world. Now he came from the worst, he came, he was living with, in a crack house with his uncle. Mm-hmm. Both his parents were in prison. Social services have been contacted. And unlike, you know, when they're contacted about somebody that took an innocent picture of their three-year-old in the bathtub, uh, didn't spring into action, did nothing. Law enforcement refused to go even check the crack house. He had been been expelled from kindergarten. He had attacked kids, including the little girl who he ended up killing. He had previously attacked her. Somehow he was still in class. And on that day, he brought a gun. He stole a gun from his uncle. 
it's a kindergartner, a gun and a knife to school. He was brandishing both of them openly in the classroom. Now, right. you tell me how a teacher, uh, I, you would have one eye on this kid all the time. I mean, this kid is the worst kindergarten in the history of the world, right? Some, and nobody questioned who that teacher was. It, she did, somehow she got the knife and, and took it away from him. She didn't even send him to the principal's office. So later that morning, he ends up shooting and killing this little girl. Yeah. And nobody says any, and then of course, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, puts the, uh, you know, finishing touches on. He was a, pre- I guess it was the 90s where he said uh, something like, you know, we talked about gun control. This gun control, of course. It, and yeah. then, um, It always uh, goes the, to gun control. And the, and the district attorney. Yeah, exactly. And, and dist- the district attorney said something like, we need to all collectively hug this child. Nothing happened to him. He learned no lessons. I saw his Facebook page later. He's a you know gangster wannabe. He learned right. absolutely nothing from it. So not that you would as a kindergartner. But it's just a tragedy. And the person allowed it to happen. First of all, the school system allowed it to happen that he was not in some kind of in social services. It was a failure on all our institutions. And so they all cover up for each other. Instead of recognizing when they, they harass, and I know people that social services and child protective services have harassed for no reason. They're, they're horrible. They, they, you know, they're also associated with child sex trafficking, by the way. Uh, but, you know, they, they, but in this case, they should have been doing their job. They did nothing. He went to school, and the teacher was so asleep at the switch. She didn't ever see me. I assume it's a she. I don't even know. And nobody questioned her. And I, I was back then, even online, I was asking, and I got in arguments with people back then. Oh, what are you talking about? I said, How is this teacher not responsible? Yeah. But that's the problem. I asked that question over and over again, and nobody wants to blame the teachers. Nobody wants to blame the schools. And they essentially, so essentially, the problem doesn't get solved because you're never blaming the people that are responsible. It is amazing. It's amazing that we hold these people on pedestals and despite what's actually really going on, you know, it's, it's almost like it's an unspoken rule that you're not allowed to be critical or you're not allowed to criticize. I mean, it seems like in each one of these cases, the teachers are the first ones that should have clearly been aware and it almost never comes back on the teachers. It's like then then there's like the middleman, the principal, or even the superintendent that gets involved and says, no, no, you know, we've investigated it. Yeah. Or you talk a lot of times, they'll say that's a privacy concern. We can't talk about it. <laughs> yes. Um, and then all kinds of excuses. Will you talk a little bit about even these anti-bullying experts and, and the excuses that they come up with to where the anti-bullying movement doesn't even actually get to the root of the problem or, or, or try to solve some of these issues? Nobody does. And that. And that's why I said, you know, I, I since I wrote the book, I, I again, I've heard from lots of people. One of them I, I was so moved by, and uh, the person has become I've hooked up with them them on Facebook, but and social media. But uh, her story was so uh, heart tugging, and I, I wrote a blog, a post on my blog about a story that didn't make it into bibliography, and it's all about her. But just to give you the low light of her career and to show you how, this, and this was probably this is in the, the '60s, the late '60s where uh, she was at an uh, award ceremony. They told her she was going to get an award, but she had never gotten in her entire years. She was relentlessly bullied. She had polio. And that's how long ago this was, where she says so she wore the braces on her legs, was, was bullied by kids relentlessly because of that. Awful, awful stuff. So she's happy. She's saying, well, I'm going to get an award. She tells her mom and her grandmother. They're excited. They come to the award ceremony. She's given an award by the principal of the school who's in on the joke. Right. For least least likely to succeed, he's humiliated in front of the entire school by the principal. With the principal is he's the 
the the you know the, the head of the the committee here. Right. And again, what and everybody laughs because of course the principal's doing it. It must be okay to laugh, right? Think how that humiliates someone that they're 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 never they're not used to any attention except negative attention. So they're drawn. They're called up in front of the entire school and say you're the least likely to succeed. I mean, you might as well. I guess it could have been worse. They could have voted her ugliest or something, maybe. But but that's pretty right. bad. And so you wonder. She ended up leading a seems to have led a pretty fairly normal life. But you know, some people are strong like that. But other people in those situations, they can never recover from it, and their lives are ruined. And the people that caused that, that did something, that principal, that principal should have never been allowed within any within. You know, he should have been like a, 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 a sexual predator. He shouldn't have been allowed near a playground. He should have been allowed no, nowhere near a school after that to participate in something like that. Psychological abuse, yeah. bullying, you know, yeah. ultimate bullying. But uh, again, these we don't know his name. Uh, you know, and it's. It's horrible. And there are other cases like that. And that's what, what gets me is that these people, uh, they're, they're the ones that they, they, they don't – apparently they don't feel any empathy because they are psychopathic personalities to varying degrees. They lead successful lives. They retire comfortably. Uh, on, on, on odds, odds are they're much healthier than their victims. They live longer, live a better quality of life where the victims have to go through this, uh, this torment of their horrible memories and wasted lives and no one seems to care instead they just they still laugh at them and still make fun of them and it's uh, yeah. i don't know i'll speak up for them if nobody else will but uh it's it's amazing to me that no one else is jumping on this bandwagon yeah it's crazy and then and then this this notion of virtue and i i want to kind of i guess what i want to do is with the last 10 minutes or so here get into how this all um this all affects our political dialogue right now and what's being called, you know, the cancel culture and and then the virtue signaling that's going on. And I kind of, because it seems from what I've heard, you kind of come into this from the left, but you're enough of a civil libertarian. I mean, I'm actually, if I have a confirmation bias, I kind of come from a libertarian perspective, but I'm always trying to, to find that center place. And it is, in this civil libertarian universe. And, and yeah. if no matter who I talk to, they could be a full-blown socialist or whatever capital, you know, wh- wherever they are economically, if they understand the importance of civil liberties first, and then they, ha- and they hold on to those principles, I think this big, bigger picture is easier to see, you know, we can all kind of go, yeah. okay, you know, we're not following these principles and it's causing a lot of problems. So just as, as that, as a, as a setup, but I kind of wanted to yeah. get into the cancel culture and the, and the sure. virtue signaling concepts and why now we get shamed or, you know, our, our political dialogue is clearly dysfunctional at this point. And then people are losing right. their jobs if they express a perspective that's not part of the mainstream narrative right now. Right. Well, it's, it's hard to call that anything more than vicious bullying. What, what the, right. what I call the, the virtue signalers, or the identity, the adherence or identity policies are doing now. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, you, it's the really the ultimate way. I mean, to they're basically censoring. I mean, George Bernard Shaw a long time ago called uh, said assassination was the uh, the ultimate form of censorship. But they're they're coming close to that because they're basically when you're getting someone fired. And, and the, I am, I was a leftist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not welcome in today's left. But I mean, I, I I'm friends with people like Cindy Sheehan, the International Peace Mom, mm-hmm. Cynthia McKinney, the former representative of Congress, uh, Naomi Wolf, who wrote the forward to the paperback version of Survival of the Richest. All these people are not welcome by today's left either, right. because we we care about civil liberties, we care about a war and peace. 
we care about uh, you know solving the problems uh, you, you prison reform and judicial reform things that that uh, the war on drugs all this nonsense victimless crimes things that liberals used to care about and that's what attracted me to the left today's left doesn't care at all about those things they mm-hmm. exist pretty much solely to police speech and try to get people fired for saying things that offend them and they're offended by everything so uh, and again these are these are the ultimate bullies the Karens, if you will, in the world that 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 uh, or just they take something that somebody said, and in many ways it's wor- a far worse form of bullying because it takes away people's livelihoods, where they don't think of, for a right. second of okay, I'm going to report somebody that he said something on social media. I mean, look what they're doing to this Congressman Marjorie Taylor Greene, where they officially uh, uh, took her off. Of all the committees because of things she'd said on her own free time. And it's, I've argued about this ad nauseum with leftists on social media. They don't care. They don't understand. They don't. And I've had to come to the conclusion that the vast majority, uh, the majority of Americans don't believe in free speech. They really don't. The yeah. left definitely doesn't. Today's I, left. I agree. If if they disagree with you, they don't think you're supposed to have free speech. You know, as a civil libertarian, I know that you know you have to fight for the speech you disagree with. Otherwise, because if everybody doesn't have free speech, no one does. But they don't they don't look at it that way. They look at it. Yeah, you have free speech as long as you say something. I, and they come up with this absurd notion of hate speech, mm-hmm. which is incompatible with free speech. Because hate speech is what does that even mean? It's a human emotion. You decide what hate speech is, so it infringes on free speech. And it's it's uh, and now that this one party is in charge, and there's not even any nominal opposition, uh, we just have to hope that things don't go completely full authoritarian. Because we're very close to that as it is, and they just don't rewrite the Bill of Rights because they don't believe in it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so the people in charge now, they could easily just, you know, say, you know, we don't need this First Amendment thing because we don't agree with it anyhow. They, they, everything they do makes it clear that they do not believe in free speech. So I, I can't get past that issue. I'm kind of a one-trick pony on, on social media now because I, I'm using that all the time to try to wake people and the good people up. And it's just not working because they have the Trump derangement syndrome. They're still thinking that. And so anything that's against Trump, they justify. And it's – yeah. It's I've a shame seen, because I've seen <laughs> craziness where I'll post a scientific, you know, yeah. peer-reviewed study. People will look up the scientists, go, they were they're a Trump supporter, so their science is wrong. You know, I mean, yeah, I can't yeah. have a rational conversation about anything that if Trump no. maybe kind of agreed with it years yeah. ago, then it's just right. wrong. I mean, do you, do you know who you quoted? It's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were right. You know, yeah, I know. Yeah. Like, can we have yeah. an actual conversation about the facts that have to yeah. do with the converse, the discussion? But, but yep. no, because it it gets in around the aura of something that may sound good for Trump. I mean, you have yeah. a whole chapter. I've seen you actually on social media get kind of hammered for yeah. sounding like you agreed with Trump, even yes. though you you have a whole a part of the afterward, I think, or an appendix to the book. Where yeah. you talk about how Trump is the quintessential bully. I mean, right, you know, right, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And he, and he not has a Trump supporter. No, I mean, I'm not, and I don't have. I, but it, it doesn't matter because the people that hate Trump, yeah, uh, they anything you do to attack those who hate him is considered support of Trump. So I mean, I, I got tired. I've, I've you know, I, I can't it's explain it any better than I have. It's very frustrating. <laughs> I, but I care right about civil liberties. I care about civil liberties. I care about free speech, and it's just. Uh, very few Americans seem to these days, and so I just have to hope that we can keep it because I want to, I want to still have the right to do whatever interviews I can do like this one, and to to write my blog and get my books published. And I don't know if that'll happen right. because if if the uh, the uh, counter the cancel culture succeeds, they don't want these things. They don't want any. They don't want right. any opposition at all, and uh, they well, want everybody to be singing the same tune. 
And it's so reminiscent of what we were discussing before, where these egregious violent activities by bullies will get glossed over or covered up by the mainstream. But then, you know, as you describe the kid who eats the cookie into the shape of a gun will get arrested or the kid who right. brings an aspirin to right. class. I mean, so right. the microaggressions are just you get hammered. And this is the same thing with hate speech. If you didn't, oh, I didn't right. word that quite politically correct right. enough. You're going to get hammered. You you could get fired. Right. I mean, we had this actress that got fired today, or Dr. Simone Gold that you know yes, a few months ago right. coming out for hydroxychloroquine, yeah. and she got. I mean, getting fired from from your job because you have an opinion yep. that's different from others. But if you commit for committing a, a microaggression, but then again on these larger topics. Uh, you know, the wars that are going on or the, you know, the yeah. egregious behavior of, of the upper class or the, I mean, what I would consider the big tech censorship, you know, right. just gets right. glossed over and covered up like it's not that big of a deal. Um, yes, and it is it is very much to be compared to what we see in, in high school as far as bullying being enabled and uh, absurd little things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, being being punished and it's it's so it's it reflects society at large but unfortunately it's the nature of the people in charge and uh you know for whatever reason uh, the vast majority of americans seem satisfied with or the majority yeah. seem satisfied with it. people in control do you know that's another thing that that has been fascinating to me about the whole thing is you would you can clearly you can understand why the people that are in power you know who then you look at their histories of course they were the jocks and the popular kids and and so you see why they want to perpetuate the system. But it's amazing that the ones, the victims, then yeah. have this Stockholm syndrome, clearly. Yeah. And yeah. they, I guess they want to justify their suffering. Like it must have been worth something and everybody yeah. has to go through it. And I learned um, from it. Yeah, yeah. And so it was, it was, it was, it was an educational Experience. Yeah, it was a, it was a growth experience, educational experience. Yeah, I, I've and I, I I give some examples in the book of people who believe and they justify it later. And I guess because they achieve some measure of success, they will. And so I guess they're in the system now, so they realize, hey, the system's pretty good, you know, if you play along with it. And uh, and right. I guess I, I don't I can't get inside their minds, but I, all I know is that you know it's it's it should be uh, those kinds of things happening should never happen to anyone. And nothing that bad that happens uh, you know, in, in an institution that our taxes pay for. And is enabled by people whose salaries we pay should never be allowed to to uh, torture somebody enough to where decades later they're still impacted by it. We all ought to be right. concerned about that, but unfortunately, I, it doesn't seem like that many people are. Yeah, sad state of affairs. Well, yeah. thanks so much, uh, at least in my opinion, for writing this book and and <laughs> oh, revealing that 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 dark underbelly. And I and I hope that more people do check it out. I'll put it up. I have a little bookstore on my website with uh with those people that i interview that have uh that have written books and so i'll throw it up there so if people are interested they could find it there do you want do you have any kind of closing words or or just let people know where they can find out more about uh your information find your blog and and all of your books well yeah you can you can find me i write my blog is keeping it unreal it's donaldjeffries.wordpress.com uh, you can follow me on twitter i need to get more active there at don jeffries very active on Facebook. I'm really easy to find there. Uh, my books are, if you Google me, you'll find out more information probably than you want to know. Yeah. So. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Don. I'll let people know that you've been listening to The Shift. I've been your host, Doug McKenty, and you can find all of my stuff uh, at theshiftnow.com. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty, and uh, I'm on Facebook and YouTube, and now a variety of other social media sites, Minds and Float, and uh, and some of the other ones, uh, MeWe and Gab. 
so if you want to check me out, you can check me out there. But I'm trying to get more people to go to uh, the website, theshiftnow.com. Sign up for the newsletter, and that way you'll get uh, everything that I'm producing every week, uh, and we can keep in touch that way. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, thanks a lot, Don, again, for writing this book. And thanks for coming on the show. Great conversation. Well, thank you. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. That was my conversation with Donald Jeffries. I started reading this book. When I first got it, I thought it was going to be a little bit more about the political conversation, the political dialogue we've been having, and the cancel culture that's been growing uh, against people that especially, um, like probably most of us that are uh, listening to this podcast and myself, Uh, included in that for sure, where uh, our opinions uh, typically go against the dominant political narrative. We're seeing so many people getting attacked and shamed and canceled and bullied, frankly, uh, if we have an opinion that differs uh, from the mainstream, from the government corporate narrative. And uh, I was thinking that that's what bullyocracy was going to be about. And then as I started reading it, and he starts to describe the high school culture, and he starts to get into the school culture, Uh, with the popular kids and the bullying that happens on that level, I became more and more intrigued. Of course, I, like probably many of you, remember being in high school, um, and I went to a high school in Texas where that kind of um, football culture was really prominent. And I was just a little bit shocked, you know, (laughs) that we were forced to go to the pep rallies, that everybody had to almost... uh, you know, give the athletes this this worship status that and the cheerleading and the popular kids and the whole hierarchical structure, it just sort of baffled me. I mean, I really thought that we were there to get an education and that that should have been the principal motivation uh, behind the whole thing. But, uh, it, you know, it was just amazing to me, even at that young age as a teenager, to kind of look at the system and realize the adults just perpetuated this. I mean, they they loved it. They assumed that it was just a part of growing up and a part of this great, uh, you know, process of, of being socialized in school and some of the kids get to be popular. And they just don't really seem to think that much about the unpopular kids and, and what they're experiencing so much. But I've just heard it over and over again. As I mentioned in the discussion, I, I homeschooled my own children. And when people would ask me, you know, are they in school? I'd say, well, they're homeschooled. Oftentimes I get this response. Well, how are they going to get socialized? And it's like socialized into what, you know, I've always looked at it as uh, kids getting thrown into this Lord of the Flies situation and then basically having to duke it out on their own. Um, dealing with these outrageous social situations where the more powerful kids, the bullying kids, or the um, most often the popular kids, uh, we're getting um, all of these alkalades and allowed to get away, and sometimes, as in the case of this book, literally with murder. Um, and I got to tell you guys, the, uh, the examples in the book, which are many, many examples that he cites of the abusive behavior, it's way over the top. We're talking about, uh, you know, n- murder, rape, uh, oftentimes just multiple examples of kids being driven to suicide by the humiliating uh, by being humiliated by this kind of bullying behavior just over and over and over again and over and over again, where the question that he kept asking was, where were the adults while this is happening? And uh, the examples that he had, of course, where when the kid is getting picked on or bullied, there's no adult. But if the kid fights back, man, the teacher shows right up and says, hey, you know, what's going on? Uh, and then the and then the victim will get in trouble. I mean, more often than not, uh, 
if the bullies are going to get published, then the victim gets published as well. Well, now you guys are fighting. You know, the humiliation, the bullying behavior, that wasn't enough. But if you stand up against it, it becomes an altercation. Then everybody gets suspended or whatever. You know, everybody gets treated like it was... It was all just everybody's fault, not supposed to be fighting in school, when clearly uh, these victims, again, often driven to suicide. Or, and he gets into the books about the school shooting. And I brought up in the conversation that when Col Columbine happened, I remember thinking, yeah, I mean, I remember my high school experience, and I'm, I'm not surprised that... You know, it's now it's gotten to this level where kids are just being driven over the edge. You know, we're forced to get into this environment. We're getting bullied every day. You know, uh, eventually what's going to happen when there's no other out and this, this, this psychological torture is just mounting and mounting. I mean, the anger is building. I thought for sure, finally, we were going to have this national conversation about uh, the toxic environment in, in the public schools. And, uh, you know... It just, they just gloss over it. And he has, again, examples in the book. The school administrators not willing to talk about it, not willing to blame the bullying or the bully culture. Uh, the journalists glossing it over, glossing over this behavior, um, you know, oftentimes saying it was just sort of a practical joke gone wrong, or these kids will be kids. And, uh, you know, they're too young really to be, we can't let it destroy their lives. A lot of times you hear like these football players or basketball players, well, they'll lose their scholarship, so let's not... You know, after after gang rape allegations or, uh, you know, the hazing that includes, you know, just all kinds of horrible behavior, criminal behavior. Um, and then, of course, you know, this typical bullyocracy, this hierarchy that starts, that gets ingrained in everyone in high school. And that's why I think, you know, again, going back to this idea that public schools are socializing us into our adult lives. Well, of course, then he cites the examples of the fraternity hazing or, um, you know, even uh, police brutality uh, or, you know, other social cliques in the workplace uh, that are putting people down, that are victimizing certain individuals until they're just miserable in their lives and suicidal and depressed. Uh, and live in constant anxiety. He has examples of people that are in their 50s and 60s and have never healed emotionally from the trauma that they experienced in the public education system. And yet, nobody talks about it. So it's really just, um, it is just actually kind of crazy. Like, I think it's this subconscious characteristic where it starts early in the school systems where the 1% or the popular kids the top of the bullyocracy, they can get away literally with murder, with murder, with rape, with beating, with picking on someone until they become suicidal and kill themselves. Um, and yet the blame is never really put on the social system. Nobody's talking about why does this bullyocracy exist? Why are we standing by while bullying behavior occurs? Uh, and then jumping into the fray when there is some kind of... Uh, you know, when the victim actually starts standing up for themselves or when, you know, again, and I'm not justifying any kind of school shooting behavior, of course, but when somebody snaps to that extent, we have to wonder about the toxic situation that created that behavior. Uh, but nobody ever questions it. Nobody questions the teachers or the school system. Uh, it's almost as if that they're all above reproach. Uh, even when we see teachers involved in the bullying or examples of the bus drivers who are involved in the bullying and then they don't get fired after the kid goes home and commits suicide. Uh, it all gets covered up, swept under the rug. And yet, as he mentions, uh, smaller behaviors, um, playing 
cowboys and Indians can get a kid suspended. Somebody that's taking aspirin in school uh, will get suspended because they're having drugs in class. Um, you know, I mean, it's just outrageous where these huge crimes get covered up, swept under the rug, the bullying behavior, uh, but then these microaggressions are now getting super targeted. And I think we're seeing this with the cancel culture and our and our, uh, in our political dialogue these days, where a microaggression is just the worst thing that you can do and you'll get called out. Um, but if you actually question the official narrative, then boom, you know, you're the one that's getting bullied. You're the one that's getting shamed. And so I, um, I kind of want to urge people, if you're listening to this and if you like what you're hearing and you haven't yet, then please check out my Psychology of Lockdown series. Because what we discuss in that series are that we, we, we equate... Uh, why so many people are just following what the authority figure is saying to why does a child in an abusive household with an abusive father figure or authority figure just follow along with what the father figure will say or the authority figure will say. And the idea is that we've all been traumatized to a certain extent. And if we don't heal from that traumatic event, then we're trauma bonded or there's a type of Stockholm syndrome with the authority figure. And so we can continually be abused by authority and not stand up. And in fact, you know, um, snitch on the others who are standing up. If you're not wearing a mask, my God, call get calling the cops. If you're not doing what you're told, uh, then you're being publicly shamed. You're being told that you're a narcissist or a psychopath because you disagree with what the authority figure is saying. Uh, and we're not actually having rational dialogue with people that have different opinions and coming to conclusions based on political dialogue. Uh, it's just, if you don't do what the authority figure says, then you're automatically wrong. And I think that a lot of this, and I brought it up in the Psychology of Lockdown series, where, well, in school, if you regurgitate what the authority figure says, you get an A, and if you don't, then you get a, an F. You're hu humiliated, you're shamed, uh, you're embarrassed, uh, you don't, you know, you, you're not good enough to deserve the A. So they use this kind of carrot and stick psychology that ingrains in all of us already, well, we better do what we're told. We better believe what the teacher says. We can't doubt what the teacher is saying or else we'll get a failing grade. But what ends up happening, I think, is then when you add on top of this the bully culture that we're all experienced, that we all experience when we're in these situations for long periods of time, is that, that tra the traumatizing event, the victimization that occurs within the bullyocracy, also then perpetuates as we get older into having to do what the authority figure says, whether it's in the hierarchy at work where the bully becomes the boss, which happens, uh, as Donald talks about in the book, uh, very often, that these bullies in high school and college then become the bosses at work or the political figures and end up being successful in politics. And then this bully culture just extends to that. And why is it that the mass of us have then learned to do, to follow, to have this trauma response. Oh, we better do what the bully says or else we're going to get picked on, humiliated, uh, you know, and it may, it'll just get worse and worse. Uh, the authority figures will never show up to protect us. Um, and so we have to learn how to handle it ourselves. And this is where it all ends up. Uh, suddenly, uh, just a few people, a few bullies, can really control the masses because as soon as the authority figure tells us to do something, well, we better do it or else we're going to get bullied. We're right back in high school. We're right back in that wounded inner child that says, 
if we don't do what the authority figure says, if we don't do what the abusive father figure says, uh, you know, we can't take care of ourselves. We're too weak. We're powerless. We're back in fight or flight mode. Um, you know, with all they have to do is pump us full of fear in the media. We're back in, in fight or flight mode. Uh, and then we're emotionally incapable of really standing up for ourselves. So I think that there's something behind this notion of bullyocracy that is really, really important and we should all pay attention to. I was really happy to be able to hash this out with Donald. Uh, and I hope that you all think about checking out his book. It's going to be uh, up at the bookstore. If you click on the bookstore uh, on the website, you'll be able to check it out at theshiftnow.com. Uh, and uh, I'll just give you, uh, if you want to find out more about Donald's work, then please check him out. That's at donaldjeffries.wordpress.com. You can uh, get his most recent blog post there. He's got everything archived going back years, actually. A lot of interesting information just in the blog, plus uh, he'll have all of his other books uh, up on that website as well, so you can check him out or just Google his name, like he said. And of course, uh, again, go to www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, I got hours of free content up there, and uh, please think about uh, subscribing to the newsletter or even subscribing for the long-form feature-length interviews. It's only six bucks a month, and uh, I appreciate it. Guys, got to eat, so. Um, I'd appreciate it if you think about doing that. And uh, of course, I think my next uh, my next interview should be coming up next week. Sasha Stone. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to do a deep dive into um, a lot of the spirituality around all of this. The the spirituality, the spiritual practices of the upper classes, uh, where this bullying behavior comes from, perhaps ultimately. Uh, and then um, I think I'm planning on discussing with him some of the spiritual practices of, say, of the traditional Chinese uh, or the traditional Hindu or uh, many of the indigenous tribes that are still active around the world today where their spiritual understanding differs from the type of spiritual practice or the consciousness, this colonizing consciousness that we experience here in the West or, or those who have been colonized by the empire. So we're going to get into all of this spiritual information uh, about... Um, about all of that next week. So stay tuned for that. And uh, thanks again, everybody. If you like what you're hearing, do think about uh, sharing all this information on your social media. I am relying on people like you uh, to spread the word about this. And uh, of course, uh, if you go to the website, I'm always trying to get people to go there, www.theshiftnow.com and sign up for the newsletter. And then we'll be in direct contact so we won't have to deal with the third party uh, and the big tech censorship that's uh, always ever present uh, when you're trying to talk about subjects outside of the mainstream. So thanks again, everybody. And we'll see you soon. We'll see you again next week. Take care.